0: Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development.
1: Welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by William Asiko, someone I've known for, I think it's 20 years, William, now. And we first met when you we were working at Coca-Cola. I was a young lad then. You were a young gentleman then. We're, we're Well, we're 20 years older, is the honest truth. And since then, you've had a really interesting career. You were obviously at Coca-Cola for a very long time. Um, your career there culminated in you running... The Coca Cola Africa Foundation. And then you moved on, I think I'm right in saying, to the investment climate facility, Grow Africa. And now you're president for the Africa region at the Rockefeller Foundation. You've spent a career in international development, but working both in the private sector and with philanthropic foundations. You've really spent a good proportion of that career very much at the intersect of industry and government where the markets meet the state. That's a space that we as Africa practice very much occupy in helping our clients to constitute partnerships that can enable investment and development to happen at scale, give partners the confidence to to progress and advance at pace. I'm really interested in the course of this conversation with you to draw on some of that, that valuable experience and history you have, as I say, at that intersect, to tell our audience a little bit more about what works, what doesn't. You've been involved in some really big programs and and now you're you're an organization that has multiple partnerships. I was doing a little bit of research and preparing for this interview. I was astounded at the quantum of commitments that Rockefeller Foundation has across Africa and the number of partners that you have. And so I'm really interested to delve into that. But first, if I may, and I'm going to stop talking in a moment and, and let you have the mic. First, if I may, I know that the Rockefeller Foundation has been very active in responding to the COVID pandemic um, globally, but also in Africa. I think you've made a commitment of a billion dollars over the next three years to help with COVID recovery and drive more inclusive and sustainable growth in a post-pandemic environment. We've got this pandemic that, frankly, is still growing in Africa. We had a a bit of fortune, I think it looks like, last year, but now the, the statistics are not looking good. The vaccine has just started to be rolled out in some countries, good news from COVAX and just this week. But tell us, if you will, what's the Rockefeller Foundation doing specifically towards COVID response efforts in Africa?
0: Thank you very much, Marcus, for that introduction of both myself and the foundation. I'd like to start, if I may, to just address some of the things you said about my own personal experience in my career. You know, I was originally trained as a lawyer, and I worked for the Kenyan government for six years. So in addition to philanthropic and and, and private sector, I also have public sector experience. I'm not talking about this to sort of, you know, praise myself in any way, but it's because this particular combination and this nexus, I think, is the future of the way development is going to be successful. Uh, we have had many years—an average of fifty to fifty-five years—of international development in Africa. Most of which has not worked. Some of it has been very successful, but the vast majority has not produced the kind of sustainable development that was hoped for when those projects commenced. So there is, in my view, and I think there are a lot of institutions, organisations, and even national governments that are beginning to realise that using public sector resources to attract private sector and using philanthropic resources to de-risk the private sector investment is the way to go to finance development projects. So this is becoming a very important area. And the Rockefeller Foundation is at the forefront of of doing this. If I could come now to uh, what you said about the foundation and the number of commitments. So we are one of the oldest foundation, private philanthropic foundations in the world. And what that has meant is that we have done many things. And that's hence, you will see the number of commitments at quite high levels. However, today, there are much newer, much larger foundations with bigger endowments that are able to commit much larger sums of money. And so the Rockefeller Foundation has to be very innovative. And focusing on data and innovation has been one of the ways we do that. We see ourselves as catalysts partners that start uh, initiatives, bring other partners on board, and leave functioning platforms or institutions to carry on the work. And so that is sort of the model that we use. Coming right now to the pandemic and the question that you asked, yes, the pandemic all over the world has caused serious challenges for government. But for Africa, the challenge is that even pre-pandemic, sectors like agriculture, Sectors like hospitality, sectors where transport were already bedeviled with challenges. And so governments were working hard to overcome those challenges. However, the COVID pandemic, the restrictions on socializing, the restrictions of the movement, these restrictions on international travel and domestic travel in some cases, has indeed caused those problems to be exacerbated. And so it is really important that philanthropic organizations assist governments and private sector to see what can be done. So specifically, one of the things that the foundation has done is make this commitment of a billion dollars to fight the pandemic and assist a clean, green recovery from the effects of the pandemic to the most vulnerable communities. And what does this mean? There is this desire, I guess it's a natural instinctive desire for us to go back to pre-COVID days when we could socialize, when we could feel and touch each other and when we could go about our business the way we wanted. But the reality is there are many communities in Africa and around the world that are never going to go back to their pre-COVID days. They were already struggling during pre-COVID and now this pandemic and the effects of social distancing uh, and lockdowns has taken them to a place where it will be very difficult to So there are two objectives with the billion-dollar commitment that we have made, which we are calling the moonshot. The first is to end the pandemic, and to end the pandemic everywhere and for everyone. There are great strides being made in richer countries, in richer communities, even amongst African countries, to end the pandemic. Those who are able to social distance, have access to medications, and have access to the vaccines. You know, the pandemic will end earlier for them. Okay, But there will be many countries and communities that will struggle. And those are the ones we are focused on. So the commitment that we've made, $35 million coming right here to Africa, is to assist in increasing testing and tracing capacity, to focus on vaccine deployment, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and then to allow community health workers who are really at the front line of this pandemic in Africa not medical workers, I mean, many medical workers are indeed on the front line, uh, but community health workers, especially in rural areas, are now frontline health workers when it comes to the pandemic. So this grant is going to assist the Africa CDC to work with national governments to ramp up their testing and tracing work. And then when vaccines do arrive, to work with national governments on vaccine deployment and to assist in uh, you know communications around vaccine hesitancy, to look around logistics and some of the challenges that might be faced uh, even when countries do already have vaccines. On the second level, we're focusing on ending energy poverty. Now why ending energy poverty? There is no country in the world, and today you will have heard the news that China has reached a milestone today of pulling a hundred million people out of poverty in just a period of eight years. What a remarkable achievement. Now, there's no country in the world that has pulled people out of poverty, not certainly not at that scale, that has not first worked on ending energy poverty. And so we believe that in order to fight poverty at its very core, you must first deal with the challenge of energy poverty. This allows people opportunities, not just providing lighting in in the home, but it also allows small businesses to flourish. It allows for agriculture to increase irrigation to increase agro-processing, it just benefits people in a way that other interventions uh, may not necessarily do. So it is a catalyst for development and economic growth. So that's in a nutshell
1: what the Moonshot is about and what our pandemic response is like. Thanks William for that. Moonshot, I think I heard you refer to it as. I'm interested, it's a significant commitment you've given in these areas of testing and tracing, vaccine deployment, community health workers, and even communications to try to to address vaccine hesitancy. It's um, a continent of 54 countries. This is an expensive exercise. Have you been reassured that Africa is going to be capable of mobilizing adequate resources to achieve progress and the required results in each of these four or five areas?
0: Yeah, no, that's an excellent and very, very pertinent question. There is no doubt that no single country, no single institution, whether it's a development finance institution, the World Bank, African Development Bank, or whether they're bilateral development partners, uh, governments around the world supporting, there is no doubt that there is no country or institution that is going to be able to do this alone. So fighting the pandemic and the effects of the pandemic has to take a partnership approach with each institution or, or partner bringing to the table what they best can do. So Africa has done, I think, remarkably well. And I'm really quite proud of the achievements so far that we have seen. First of all, through the African Union and through with the help of the Rockefeller Foundation, we've established what we're calling an African Medical Supplies Platform. So the African Medical Supplies Platform is almost an Amazon for uh, medical supplies, for PPE, for medications, and eventually will also work for vaccines. When these become widely available, it really is an online platform where African governments initially, but will also be open to other institutions later, can go in and be connected directly to suppliers. And through the Afro Exim Bank, uh, credit lines are being opened so that goods can be delivered before the slow machinery of government turns to make payment. So this is, you know, was a first initial step. And, uh, the African Medical Supplies Platform through the African Union. and the second thing that we have done in Africa and uh, through the African Union is the current chair of the African Union, uh, chairperson of the African Union, President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, has appointed an African vaccine task force. And what they have done, led again by Strive Masiwa, is they have already secured 270 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines from different manufacturers. These are exclusively uh, for Africa and are being pooled, procured, to make it easier for African countries to access them. This has been funded through a variety of ways, You know, through the African Union, through uh, development assistance uh, from development partners, and of course, through national governments as well. So, you know, that's really encouraging to see the $270 million doses have been committed. Those doses will start arriving in African countries from early next week. I know that Ghana has already received the first vaccines, And many countries, Kenya is in the pipeline to start next week and a number of other countries as well. There are resources. I'm sure that they're not enough, but there are resources uh, in order to do this. We ourselves uh, have committed $12 million to the Africa CDC to strengthen its capacity to work with national governments on testing, tracing, and uh, capacitating community health workers and vaccine deployment. So we ourselves have put our resources right behind this effort. We are not working in isolation. We're working with a number of other donors through the Africa Donor Collective, which is a platform for development partners that are interested in supporting the fight against COVID-19 in Africa uh, through the Africa CDC. And there are about 24 donors on this platform. So there are a variety of resources available. Is it enough? I don't think that anybody could say that the resources are enough, but I think it's a very, very good start indeed.
1: We've spoken about the African medical supplies platform on a few occasions on this podcast. And I think because, because frankly, we've all been impressed at how fast the initiative was established and how quickly it's become effective. I remember being told that actually non-African countries are using the platform to procure supplies, which has to be a testament of a great initiative. I, I think was, and no, I don't think, I know, I was very impressed by Strive's statement that the Vaccine Task Force is determined to get coverage at sixty percent, I think it is, and to raise the requisite funding to then procure the right amount of doses for that. I think it's been really encouraging to see that PPP has both established itself so quickly on a continental basis with global reach, and is moving at a relatively fast timetable. And fingers crossed, is looking to be pretty effective. I can't think of many other examples, William, and this is going back. know almost the 20 years that we've known each other to initiatives that have been as frankly confidence building as this one we've got some way to go yet and i don't want to pretend that COVID is going to be eradicated on this continent this year or even possibly next year i think it's going to be quite a journey but it is encouraging to see that with collaboration between our multilateral institutions particularly here the au but with the initiative and, and leadership of, of private sector individuals and the support of African governments, we can achieve things of this scale. I wonder if you, you know how keen I am to, to benefit from your experience over the two decades that, that you've been working in international or more than two decades that you've been working at this nexus. Does this give grounds for optimism that the sort of work that the Rockefeller Foundation preaches and and leads in, in terms of building these collaborations and these partnerships, that actually now we have the political will, where previously I think that that was absent in many African countries. There's the political will now and the acceptance that the private sector has many of the solutions to our development challenges, and we need to give them the license to innovate in these areas. With fair regulation... But I think that's a seismic shift, if I will. And I think that it's been accelerated because of COVID. Would you agree with some of those observations? Certainly. I think COVID and the effects of it and now for a year has exposed many
0: things. And, and some of them mm-hmm. have been, you know, challenging, but many of them have been quite positive. I, I think there is no doubt that, you know, countries, nations, communities have come together like never before to fight this. And especially if you think about how early versions of the lockdown were enforced. Many people were doing things because it was the right thing to do. And, you know, you would never have thought in communities around the world, not just in Africa, you know, many people would just say, wow, this is the right thing to do. Let me do it. I know that there have been many cases of lockdown fatigue uh, around the world and Africa has not been spared. But I have been very impressed with the way Uh, governments have come together, they've brought together different development partners, the private sector in many cases, and they have sat down, raised resources, you know, they have brought expertise. I know, for example, in the vaccine deployment, which I was speaking yesterday with the Africa CDC, companies like DHL, Coca-Cola are all bringing their expertise to see how they can help governments with the supply chain and the logistics involved with uh, getting vaccines from the manufacturer, to uh, the country, national airport, from the the main airports uh, to vaccine distribution centers, and then out there into the community without breaking the cold chain. And so these are going to be challenges. These are going to be challenges, but the studies that are being conducted, understanding what capacity there is for, for cold chain, making sure that people are being trained to give these vaccines. We just assume that all medical workers are experienced in giving vaccines. That's not necessarily the case. So there's going to be a lot of training, capacity building. All these things will require high levels of partnership at national, and in the case of certainly Kenya, sub national governments where you have devolution and so on. And uh, it, it, it does give me hope. It does give me hope, Marcus, that uh, this is a turning point in the way the development assistance, development projects, and international development in generally is conducted.
1: I see much, much reason for optimism. That's great. It would be nice to see or to think that the effort to deploy vaccines across the continent would be, one hopes, a shot in the arm for the African Continental Free Trade Agreement as well. And to see that some of the the obstacles that still exist to the ratification of that across all African countries would perhaps be more easily addressed now that there's this urgency around getting the vaccines across the continent. We can hope that grounds for optimism, as you say. William, you you spoke about the COVID response. You've spoken about the commitment that the Rockefeller Foundation has to energy access. And you gave the example of of China there, where they prioritised ending energy poverty, the, the 100 million that you referred to in terms of getting 100 million out of poverty in the period that you referred to. I know that as the Rockefeller Foundation, you're heavily invested in health. And you've talked about the pandemic response, which is largely health interventions, not exclusively, but largely health interventions. But I also know that you do a lot in the area of food security. I'm really interested to, to get your views here, not least because I know that you were CEO of Grow Africa for a period and that you've had quite a lot of involvement, I think, with the with AGRA. Um, I, I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's, it's one of the flagship continental agriculture initiatives. You'll tell us now, what does AGRA stand for?
0: <laughs> the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa.
1: There we are. So exactly that that I really wanted to talk about and to draw on your pedigree over more than two decades. We've talked about this green revolution. You've been actively involved in trying to encourage it in various positions that you've occupied and continue to do so now at the Rockefeller Foundation. What eludes us as Africa that we really haven't drawn on our competitive advantages as as a largely agrarian society and, and continent to really be globally competitive in agriculture? That's a rather sort of not despondent but um, not so optimistic perspective I've given I know there's been a lot of progress, but we still not achieve what I would call the transformation that is so much a part of the agriculturalist vernacular. Tell us a little bit if you will about the context there and, and specifically what you're doing and the philosophy that you take at the Rockefeller Foundation towards agriculture and food security. Thank you uh,
0: Marcus look agriculture is something that is very close to the hearts of many Africans, not not least because it is the major sector of the economy in most African countries, but also most people in Africa were brought up by parents who were either smallholder farmers or had some connection to agriculture in some shape or form. Sadly, agriculture on the continent has been the subject of poor policies, underinvestment, and really just wrong approach for policymakers across the continent for many, many years. All right there are pockets of success. Don't get me wrong. Not every single country has, you know, done the same. There are others that have done much better than others. But overall, we're still far from where the potential could actually be seen, could, could actually be achieved. And so, you know, you are right. We haven't seen the transformation that we have been looking for. The Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, AGRA, was set up really to address some of those challenges. And we are very proud that we were one of the first contributors to Agra at its inception. And today, it is a thriving institution that we spun on nearly 15 years ago. We're very proud of what it has achieved, right? Now, the challenge, I think, with agriculture is that many countries have seen, in particularly here in Africa, have seen agriculture as an isolated sector around food production. Right. And that in itself, you know, I know that there's been a lot of focus on that and so on, but that in itself is not sufficient. You have to look at agriculture as a food system. And once you begin to take a systemic approach to agriculture, you begin to look at other things that are affecting agriculture apart from the farmer and the farm. Okay, And so I I really do think that we are now moving towards that. I know that there is the UN Food Systems Summit this year that is being chaired by Dr. Agnes Kalibata, who is the president of Agra, which is a really good thing, I think, for Africa, because the influence that she has on this continent with heads of state and with policymakers at the senior level is immense. And so I I really do think it's great that she has this one-time opportunity to really influence the way agriculture is looked at, agriculture is invested in, and agriculture is used by national governments in Africa. It is part of a food system. Agriculture has been bedeviled by two challenges, and even pre-pandemic, these challenges existed. The first was low productivity, and low productivity is a result of many factors. One is over-reliance on rain-fed agriculture. The second is low inputs, and the third is poor farmers. And so, you know, those contribute to the low productivity levels that we have. The second is access to markets. And so the idea that agriculture has been used for food security by many smallholder farmers in Africa is well said, everybody understands that. Uh, but today, you know, even those who do produce surpluses have a challenge getting their produce to market. Those who produce for the market have a challenge with cartels and with middlemen giving, taking advantage of them. And so we got to look at agriculture as a food system. You've got to fix the productivity And you've got to fix the market access side as well. And then, you know, and market access is a wide, wide topic that would be the subject of a separate forecast on itself and the things that affect it. You you talked about the African continental free trade trade area. Neighboring countries in Africa still import things that their neighbors make because we we don't have the level of intra-Africa trade that we should have. So those are all things that should come into play As we begin to fix agriculture, we're not going to get transformation in agriculture until the private sector is investing at scale and they are making money and they are able to make money in agriculture. And and then we'll begin to see the transformation. But you can only do that if you look at it as a food system rather than as a sector in itself. And I think we are moving in that direction. Thank
1: you, William. That's really encouraging to hear. I know too, I'm coming on to the last big theme that the Rockefeller Foundation is heavily invested in, and this is on um, expanded economic opportunity. We spoke briefly just before this interview about the work that you're doing on data innovation, which I find incredibly exciting. Data innovation technology, and then you're an impact investor in your own right, I think, aren't you? And tell us a little bit more about what you're doing to expand economic opportunity on the continent, which I know. As I refer to it, it's through your own direct interventions, but also the enabling environment that you're creating for other actors. Thank you. You know, data and innovation has been a part of the Rockefeller Foundation for a long time. And I outlined the
0: reasons why. Uh, we, we really think that data, artificial intelligence, uh, more recently, and innovation are critical parts to solving some of the world's biggest challenges. And so you talked about geospacing. So we have made investments in companies that do geotagging and that actually look, selling their expertise and services to national governments uh, to look at where parts of the country that are going to have a good harvest, where there's a risk, where you can just, policymakers are able to make better decisions with information that they couldn't actually get before this kind of technology was available. So that's one big area that we're focused on. Uh, We also invested in a program here in Kenya, which was a pilot is intended to be rolled out across Africa called Digital Jobs Africa in Swahili it was called ajira and the idea was to get a train cadre of uh, young people around digital data and so on and and then facilitate them entering into businesses that encourage that and that use data and technology as their revenue earners and so that that was something that we did nearly 3 4 years ago which is now beginning to bear fruit. He was in partnership with the Ministry of Information and Communications Technology here in Kenya. You know, it's something that was intended to directly drive jobs. But outside the data and innovation field as well, we are also focused very much on using our, you know, expanding, ending energy poverty work to expand the use of energy in agriculture. So how do we bring together some of the work we're doing around agriculture, and some of the work we're doing around energy. So to look at this ag energy nexus, all right? And I talked earlier about some of the challenges that bedevil African agriculture, low irrigation and low processing and food, post-harvest food. So these are all challenges that are very solvable with energy. So increasing the amount of land under irrigation, there's so much opportunity there for both smallholders and large commercial farmers. Increasing cold storage capacity to allow farmers not to lose their harvest of perishable crops, potatoes, horticulture fall into this. So again, allowing energy to provide that solution and then allowing energy to provide the solution of agro-processing. There There is no single country in Africa that does not have a desire or even a plan or strategy to um, process the agricultural produce more than when it comes from the farm they all have a desire to do it. They know it's a big revenue generator and potentially a very big employer. Many countries are not able to do that because of the lack of energy. And communities that are not on the national grid are definitely not able to do that. So these are the communities we're targeting uh, to see that we can connect them to green, clean energy and then allow them uh, to have a productive use of this energy through increased irrigation. Through increased post harvest, reduced post harvest loss, and through agro processing, uh, where it makes sense. So, bringing all these things together data, innovation, ag energy, and ending energy poverty all of these we see as aiding the economic recovery of Africans post pandemic.
1: Wow, that's inspiring and great to hear some examples of sort of your portfolio of work. Thank you for that. As you speak, it occurs to me that there's an energy theme running throughout your interventions. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. The Rockefeller Foundation was founded by Rockefeller, who founded Standard Oil. And at one stage, I think I'm right in saying, supplied nearly all of the U.S.'s oil and gasoline and kerosene requirements. I'm aware that just late last year, in fact, I think it was only December, the Rockefeller Foundation committed to drawing all the um, fossil fuel energy investments from its 5 billion endowment and to committing to, to not making any fossil fuel investments going forward. Quite a big commitment given Foundation's legacy. But is it right to say that this energy theme is indeed sort of preoccupation for the Foundation? And in that context, how active do you think you're going to get over the course of the next years in terms of driving The climate change agenda, let's face it, there's the energy poverty side and all of the implications that that has for economic empowerment, for access to health, for better agricultural productivity in the way that you've outlined. But there's also the critical importance of transitioning to clean and renewable energy. Otherwise, we're going to heat up too fast and literally to become extinct. There seems to be much more consensus around that now, but still there's a lot of heavy lifting to do and certainly to equip African nations to to adopt the appropriate policies for adaptation and mitigation. My observation is that we're a long way behind the curve in Africa. We've got our climate change negotiators preparing for the COP later this year. We hope that Africa will go there with a single voice, some really pragmatic policies that the world can get behind. There's no reason why we shouldn't be, frankly, a leader in this area, but we've got a long, long, long way to go And I don't see the pools of finance that are growing almost on a daily basis now, Um, big pools of finance being made available for climate finance, actually being investable in Africa. There aren't enough projects, programs, governments haven't instituted the right regulations and laws to enable this finance to flow into Africa at scale and to create what you referred to as the green recovery. And it seems to me to be such an opportunity. I wrote a little post about it on our website blog the other week. And I wonder to what degree you as the Rockefeller Foundation are invested in this journey and see it in the context of, of not just ending energy poverty, but really climate change also.
0: Thank you, Marcus. Yeah, no, for sure. The Rockefeller Foundation is at the forefront of fighting climate change. And th- this is an important agenda. It is one of the main pillars of our strategy is fighting climate change. You know, there is the the supply side, you know, so reducing carbon footprint. So those industries, sectors that are producing the carbon that is causing, is believed scientifically to cause climate change. You have to find a way to reduce that carbon footprint. That's the supply side. And then there's the demand side, you know, for clean, green energy, you know, and they're two sides of the same coin, is uh, making sure that, as you're reducing the reliance on fossil fuels and other activities that produce the carbon, you are increasing the amount of clean green energy in order to balance the two out. Because at the same time, you do not want the, the reduction in the reliance of fossil fuels to cause economic hardship for communities. So it's 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 a balance. And I think that today there is such a momentum on these two issues. There is a big, big momentum. And some would say that. The effects of the pandemic accelerated that because people began to see the benefits of clean air, a lot of outdoor work going on, less traffic on the roads, and you could begin to see. People said, wow, so this is actually possible. So I I do think that this is the time. The reason why we have focused on clean energy as part of our response to the pandemic is exactly that, is that climate change is real and we have to do our bit to bring partners on board to support this push for clean energy energy as i said is a prerequisite for eradicating poverty and so it is really important and that we made the commitment that this is going to be clean energy and we are getting tremendous responses from development finance institutions the world bank is very much on in our sights as a partner because they're investing significantly in this and other dfis and national governments are want to participate in this So energy is is critical to ending poverty. We see that, but we are very committed to doing it in a clean, green way that reduces the reliance on fossil fuels. Part of the work we're doing around ag energy, for example, is looking at areas where today there is a large amount of irrigation being conducted, but it is being conducted using diesel generators that are reliant on fossil fuels. So our challenge is, not just to convert but to make it financially viable for farmers to convert to clean energy because sometimes if you compare the costs you have to make sure that uh, the farmer gets a financial benefit over the long term from converting so there are challenges but i think there are lots, lots more opportunities
1: to do this oh william i think i've monopolized your time now i know you've got a a busy day and agenda uh, full of meetings I'm going to conclude our interview there and say thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to reconnect with you. And it's been a delight to hear you give this sort of tour de force across the continent and to understand more about the great work that the Rockefeller Foundation is doing throughout the continent as both an active investor, but also a catalyzer of partnerships and policy reform in areas extending across that broad portfolio that you reference. Thank you for all of your time, William.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Marcus. And it's been really good to reconnect with you again after such a long time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.